0: Ever since I was a little kid, I have had vision issues. I am one of those visually challenged. My eyes just didn't work right from the beginning. And uh, ever, ever since I can remember, I always had to wear some kind of device in front of my eyes so that I could see the world properly. And, um, and, and that really, over the years, hasn't improved. Turns out as we age, it doesn't improve. Who, who knew? I'm 50 now, and when I went to the optometrist last week, uh, they have me fitted with these bifocal contacts. So I'm getting used to, yeah, I didn't even know that existed, I know, I'm still trying to figure that out. But uh, yeah, I, in, in, if you could d- describe my eyesight with any word, for most of my life it's, it's been one word, blurry. Blurry, and, and you know sometimes I, I panic about that. I've been on trips where I wasn't sure if I remembered to bring my glasses because I often use contacts, but I need my glasses to be able to see when I put my contacts in. So you can see where that's a problem, if I didn't bring, you know, and then I panic thinking like, what if I can't see? And, and there are times when I wake up and I'm looking around and, and I, I cannot, it's just one big blur. Anybody? relate to my sight problems. Yeah. Thank God for good technology that helps us be able to see. But we, we know this to be true. I mean, seeing is, is super important. To, it allows us to make judgment calls about the world around us. And we can, we can figure out what's, what's in front of us and make decisions. We see beauty. That's wonderful, especially now that we're seeing the sun finally come out. And uh, I think. I think we're going to be, I think this is spring. Anybody with me? I think this might be spring. But we we make judgment calls. We can can accept things in front of us. Sometimes we see things we don't believe, and then we're kind of wrestling with, do I accept this or reject whatever's right in front of my eyes? But eyesight is crucial, and and seeing things allows us to make decisions. Whether to accept something, reject it, uh, make decisions. And we're going to be talking about that Concept today as we get into Matthew chapter 12. So, if you have a, a Bible or a device, I encourage you to find Matthew chapter 12. That's where we're going to be today. And we're going to be talking about perception, what we really see and what we accept or reject. And uh, and, and, and sometimes, as we'll see, that God doesn't always meet our expectations. God doesn't always fit in the box we like to put Him in. And so, we're confronted with who really God is in the person and work of Jesus. And we are then given the opportunity to accept or reject his lordship, his messiahship. I'm Pastor Ben. I'm glad you are with us today. If this is your first Sunday, welcome, welcome. Welcome online. We see you too. We gather like this, this like Christ followers all over the globe on Sunday because Sunday was the day that Jesus rose from the grave and that tomb was empty and it changed human history forever. That's why we gather in his name today. So let's let's pause for a word of prayer and then get into the scriptures today, asking God to help us see, understand, and accept what he has for us. Let's pray. Father, you're powerful and mighty. And uh, Father, I pray boldly for everybody in this room and online too. Lord, I pray that we would be people who have eyes to see and really see and ears to hear and really hear what you're speaking to us through the power of your word Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit here to speak and encourage, equip us for the great kingdom work you've called us to. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we left off in Matthew chapter 11. John was here last week talking through uh, Matthew 11. And what we saw there was Jesus starting to get the pushback from people. Jesus, from the beginning of his ministry, had been teaching some amazing things, some upside-down kingdom sorts of ways. We saw that in the Sermon on the Mount, a very famous message. Five through seven, we saw that, chapters five through seven. And he's been teaching, and then he, then he goes and, ex- and shows what the kingdom looks like. He talked about it. Then he went and started showing that around towns and villages uh, for both Jews and Gentiles, showing these, what happens when God's kingdom comes near. People are healed. There's beautiful things happening. But as we get into chapter 11 and 12 we're getting some pushback now from people, especially the religious leadership. Those educated in religion are having a tough time with Jesus. They're having a tough time seeing past their own perceptions of, of what God is, who God is, and his plan for humanity. So we're getting some pushback. In fact, we already got some of that last week. If you remember Matthew 11, you have John the Baptist's disciples come to see Jesus, and they're they're kind of They're questioning, but I feel like there's a challenge in there. Those disciples come to Jesus and they're saying, you know, are you the one we should be expecting or should we expect somebody else? I mean, there's a a bit of a challenge in there, isn't it? And I think that the ways of the kingdom that Jesus was showing was starting to confuse even John the Baptist, John the Immerser, someone who arguably could have been maybe Jesus' early rabbi. And so he's pushing back on Jesus. Are you the one? I'm not sure. And then we saw in chapter 11 as it unfolded, Jesus being rejected by people in the towns uh, around the Galilee area. They're just rejecting. He's coming to do these great things and they're rejecting. and, And Jesus says in Matthew 11, woe to you cities that you saw these great things and you just reject. You see it right in front of you and you reject. And so... That's kind of the backdrop of what we get into now in Matthew chapter 12. And so we're challenged as well. What are we going to do with Jesus? And uh, so let's just open to Matthew chapter 12. And we're going to do something that I, I really have never done, I don't think, in a sermon. The, the paragraph headings in your Bibles weren't original to the original writings. But um, I really feel like the English Standard Version does a pretty good job in this case of the paragraph headings, so I'm going to kind of go block by block through Matthew chapter 12 using some of those headings, and uh, and so let's just jump into it this morning. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1, and um, and let's see what happens. At at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Uh oh, his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, and this is where the ellipsis happens, dot, dot, dot. When the Pharisees saw it, they uh, had some questions for Jesus. Notice how Jesus walks through the grain fields. I'd never really noticed that, and still I started studying for this. There's some intentionality here. He walks through the grain fields. He wasn't accidentally, you know, thrown off kilter and, well, I guess we'll walk through the grain fields. You get the sense that he's intentionally walking through the grain fields. And the Pharisees uh, don't don't really like that. They they, they think this is a violation of the Sabbath. And so what's going to happen in verse 1 through really 21, these first 20 or so verses is going to have to do with all of this Sabbath stuff. What's okay to do on God's holy day and what's not okay to do on God's holy day. And this is the first part of Matthew chapter 12. And so Jesus is going to do something that's going to reflect through the entire chapter. He's going to show that he is Lord and master and sovereign over special days, he's going to show that he's the Lord and master over the temple. And over almost everything else you could possibly imagine. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And he's going to show he's sovereign over all of this. Even the special days on the Jewish calendar. And so that's what he's going to end up doing. He's lord of the spiritual realm. He's, he's, he's greater than Solomon. He, he's greater than, than the sign of Jonah. He's, he's above all. And 12 is going to be that backdrop for that. So just going block by block. Jesus will say, look, is it, is it lawful or not to, to do good on the Sabbath? This is really what he's going to boil it all down to. Uh, and he uses this, this several arguments. How, how the, the, the priests and even David uh, would, would come into the temple and eat sacred bread because they were hungry and they needed it. He's going to show that it's okay to do good on the Sabbath, on the special Holy day, and again, he's he's showing that he's greater than the Sabbath and he's greater than the temple. The second story, the first one had to do with his hungry dis- disciples, right? They were hungry and they picked grain, and that that is kind of a work, and so they they're upset about that. But then the next thing that happens is a man with a withered hand. If you had a withered hand, that meant you couldn't couldn't go to a regular job, you couldn't do manual labor. There'd be a lot of things you were prevented from. And so Jesus is presented with this man, and he, he heals him. And, and Jesus then goes on the offensive and says, well, is it, is it okay to heal someone on the Sabbath? And, uh, and so then he heals him, and, and then he uses an argument. Which one of you that has an animal, like a sheep or something, uh, if, if they fell into a pit, would you not you know, take hold of it and, and save it? Or how much, uh, how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he, and he heals this guy. So two stories, right? You have uh, the story of, uh, of the, the disciples and they're hungry and they, they feed themselves and that's good. And then you have the story of this, this guy with the withered hand and Jesus heals him as well. And basically says, yes, it is okay to do good on the Sabbath. And so in doing so, he shows his authority over, again, the Sabbath, the temple, and the law. And a man is healed, and stomachs are filled. Those seem like good things. What do the religious leaders immediately then start figuring out? How they're going to end him. They want to end him. Look at that verse 14, but the the Pharisees went out and, and conspired against him how to destroy him. What do they say? No good deed goes unpunished. Jesus does a great thing and says it's, a, it's okay to do good on God's holy day. Now, if you're a Bible nerd like me, in John's gospel, Jesus will use another argument about doing good on, the, on God's holy day, on Sabbath. And he will actually use, and this is going to sound a little odd at first, he, he will use an argument that's based on circumcision. The circumcision is this minor male surgery you may be familiar with. But Jesus will say, look, uh, circumcision is an important thing. It was, a, it was an identity marker for God's people. So there's some, some, some symbolism to it. But he says, look, moms don't choose the day that their children are born. And in the law, does anybody know how many days into a child's birth that you're supposed to do this? Ceremony of circumcision? Anybody? But if you, as a mom, have a baby, and it just so happens the eighth day falls on the Sabbath, they still do circumcision. They're still doing work on the Sabbath. And so he's, he's arguing that the Sabbath is, is for humanity, and it's a good thing. There's, you can feed yourself, you can take care of needs. It's okay to do good on the Sabbath. Every day is a good day to do good. After that happens, then Matthew will give us a hyperlink, starting with verse 18, back to, again, the Old Testament covenant, the ancient writings. We get this hyperlink where he's going to talk more about this Messiah. And he's going to give us some descriptors, even more so than we've heard already. Verse 18, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So now we're bringing Gentiles into the mix with regard to the ministry of Jesus. That is those who weren't, so to speak, the chosen Jewish people. That it's going to go out to the whole world and he's going to be this bringer of justice to every person on the planet, not just one particular tribe. Once again... God doesn't always meet our expectations. What are we going to do? Are we going to accept or reject him? Then what happens in verse 22 is probably arguably one of the most difficult in scripture. And people have wrestled over these verses and maybe you have too. This next section, I think we need to pay attention to. And it has to do with Seeing the work of God. Seeing the work of God. So in 22, we begin, and it happens again toward the end of the chapter, but what some have called the haunted house, haunted person motif. Now what's going to happen here is you have someone, a human, that's been invaded by evil. There's this evil spirit, this demon possession that happens, and it's, it's a little confusing. I know we often kind of wrestle with, what is that like? What would it be like to have this spiritual realm of evil kind of come in into you, into your soul, and kind of, uh, kind of mess you up? Well, there's a person that has this, and the scriptures say that uh, there's this demon-possessed or, or, or oppressed man who was blind and mute. And, and, and this man was brought to him, that is Jesus, and he healed him, so that the man spoke, and he saw... And all the people were amazed, were amazed. And they said, could this be the son of David? But when the, Pharisees, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So here we have a situation where Jesus heals this, this gentleman. And how wonderful is that? And he does this mighty work of God. So all the people are amazed. But those religious teachers and Pharisees, what do they see? Do they see a great act of God? Or do they see something else? What did they perceive? What did they see? This man, who's casting out these demons, must also be Satan or a demon himself. They're seeing the good work of God, and they're calling it evil. Hang on to that for a second. They're seeing what God is doing, and they're calling it evil. Now here Jesus is proving that he's he's over the spiritual realm. He is king of kings, lord of lords, sovereign over even the spiritual realm. And he demonstrates that for this this gentleman. Gets rid of this demonic oppression, and, and now the man can, can speak again. He can hear. I mean, what a, what a powerful moment for this guy. He's, he's like literally been in the dark, spiritually and physically. And Jesus heals him. What a wonderful thing. And Jesus doesn't do this in secret. He does it in front of people. And the religious leaders cannot see the work of God in this. They see the work of the evil one. And I find it interesting that you have both the physical realm and the spiritual realm all tied together for this this guy. He had the the twisting of of, of evil, this this demonic oppression, and also the twisting of his body. Both connected, and Jesus in both realms, the physical and the spiritual, brings complete healing. And And now light and hope can come into this man's life. Right in front of you right in front of the people and the religious leaders just could not see it they couldn't make the connection now i mentioned this is one of the harder passages of scripture if you'll scan down to verse 31 and 32 let me just read this real quick therefore i tell you every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people forgiven but the blasphemy of the holy spirit will never be forgiven and whatever and and, and and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And many people have wrestled over this. You know, there's a sin that can't be forgiven. What do we what do we do with this? And and I and I get it. It's one of the most difficult statements in Scripture. So some of you know that I I I love. to to kind of nerd out on the Bible stuff. And there is a version that recently many of us have discovered called the New English Translation. And you can access that on Blue Letter Bible and also Bible Gateway. And uh, if you flip to that version, the New English Translation, you'll notice uh, so many more footnotes than maybe you ever dreamed of. That um, a lot of scholars are coming together and they're, they're piecing together, here's how we translated this word and here's why. And, uh, and they get to this passage in the New English Translation. I'll, I'll read to you what, what some of the footnotes of the many, this is just one of them, uh, to kind of help us through this passage. Again, remember, we started it with a mighty work of God, that God brings healing, Jesus brings healing, right, to this, this man who was spiritually and physically in the dark, and he brought light and life to him. And the people are amazed, but who's, who's not amazed? religious leadership, and they see this great work of God and they call it evil. Just That's the backdrop of this statement. So here, here's, uh, here's what the New English Translation notes say. The passage has troubled many people who have wondered whether or not they've committed this sin. Three things must be kept in, in mind here. Number one, the nature of the sin is to ascribe what is obviously the work of God and the Holy Spirit to Satan himself. Where you're seeing a great act of God and you're saying, well, that's got to be the devil. That's that's the first thing to think of. The second thing is, it's not simply a a momentary doubt or a sinful attitude, but a settled condition which opposes the Spirit's work, typified by those religious leaders who oppose Jesus. And number three thing to think about in this passage, again, it's a difficult one, a person who is concerned about about this has probably never committed this sin. Because if you care about it, you're not in danger of violating this uh, situation. Uh, But the religious leaders, they were not concerned about anything about Jesus or his teaching. They had closed their eyes. And isn't it interesting, and this is where where I think Matthew has, has done a pretty awesome job, that these religious leaders could not see what's right in front of them, and they had unbelief and anger in their hearts, enough to want to kill and murder Jesus. And this man that was healed could not see, could not speak, and was troubled by evil in his heart. In, in, in his heart. And isn't that interesting? Jesus heals this man, but these religious leaders, they still need healing. They need healing too. You see the, the contrast there between this man and these religious leaders that just couldn't see, that had ears but wouldn't hear, and they were troubled by evil, and they wanted so much so to kill Jesus. Here's what the Eugene Peterson's version, the message, renders those two verses. This might be helpful. There's nothing done or said that can't be forgiven, but if you deliberately persist in your slanders against God's Spirit, you are repudiating the very one who forgives. If you reject the Son of Man out of some misunderstanding, the Holy Spirit can forgive you. But when you reject the Holy Spirit, you're sawing off the branch on which you're sitting, severing by your own uh, perversity all connection with the one who forgives. I never want to sever the connection to the one who forgives. Anybody with me? I never want to sever that branch. I need that branch. So, yeah, if you find yourself worried that you might have violated that, you haven't violated it. But to see the work of God, we accept it, not reject it. And these religious leaders just could not Accept it. Now, after this happens, and this is now moving on, we get to verse 38. And, and by the way, before this, Jesus wraps up his interaction about this, this man that had the, 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 the demonic oppression and he couldn't speak and, and, and couldn't hear. And all that healing and all that statement, then Jesus talks about good and bad fruit. And for those religious leaders their fruit was rotten. Their fruit was rotten because unbelief and anger had, had, had taken hold of them. And so their fruit was rotten. And Jesus talks about producing good fruit. And you can see the signposts of the kingdom when good fruit is produced. And for many of us, that would mean love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, generosity. Those are signposts of the good fruit being done. But the the scribes and the Pharisees, they're not satisfied. And they want Jesus to do a miracle. They want Jesus to do a magic trick because they're not accepting at all who Jesus is or what he's talking about. They want a pen and teller moment. They want some kind of magic trick to prove. They want evidence. And Jesus, in sort of a genius but also surprising statement, only gives them the sign of Jonah. Now this is interesting because you'd think initially that would be odd. If you know the story of Jonah, it's not really a happy story. Jonah doesn't end happy. If you're familiar with it, Jonah's this, this preacher and, uh, and and God told him to go to the city of Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria, which is a, a country that was doing all kinds of bad stuff, and basically God tells him, go and preach the city and they'll repent. Uh, and, and, and you go do that work, and Jonah says no, and takes off on a boat, and if you know part of the story or seen some of the animated versions of this story, he gets swallowed by a fish and is there for three days in the belly of the fish. And then eventually he's vomited out and he goes, do, he goes and does what God tells him to do. And he's angry about it the whole time. In fact, the whole book of Jonah ends with him just being, he's pouting, sitting there pouting that God would, would save people that he didn't think were worth saving. Right? That's kind of the story of Jonah. So you might initially think that's a weird sign that Jesus gives to them. But Without pushing it too far, Jesus, I think, was aiming for that three days, three days in the depth of the earth, the depths of the fish, and three days later he's risen to life. And I think that's the sign that they probably didn't get right away. But I think later, especially the disciples, went, "Oh, that's why he did the the sign of Jonah." But he gives them that. That's not what what they wanted. They don't they don't get a magic trick. And then Jesus, in verse 43, is going to return to the haunted house, haunted person motif. And this also may be a little bit challenging for us to to understand. Uh, and, And I'll just read a little bit of that one. When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places, seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this generation. So this might be difficult. So once again, I'm going to consult our footnotes, the New English translation. This might be helpful to understand a little bit of that. This image of the house empty, swept, clean, and put in order refers to the life of a person from whom this demon has departed, right? So evil is, is, is now ousted, and the key to the example appears to be that no one else has been invited back in to dwell. Cleaned up the house, but then nobody's been invited in. And if, and if, it, if that happens, and there's no response to God, then the, the, the way is free for, for the demon or the evil to return, so, so it's, it's, it's almost like a symbolic sort of statement that when you get the opportunity to bring God in, bring him in, accept him, don't reject him or leave that space empty because other things will fill it. I like what, what Eugene Peterson does with this. I loved how John, I think last week, quoted the, the message, and so I'll, I'll, I'll do the same here today. This is what this generation is like. You may think you have cleaned out the junk from your lives and gotten ready for God, but you weren't hospitable to my kingdom message. And now all the devils are moving back in. So once again, it's an accept or reject situation. Jesus is saying, here, here's the kingdom, it's here, and in here I am the, I'm the king of kings, lord of lords. You can accept me or reject me. And rejection becomes a very painful road to take Lots of things to unpack here. Boy, it's tough in a half hour to cover a passage like this. So many great things. And I encourage you, if anything, sermons should be a great chance for you to kind of make some footnotes to study later, to study on your own. If you've never heard of the New English Translation, check it out. Look at all the footnotes, and that might help you as you study and get to know the Lord. And so we can get to know the Lord and put his teachings into practice. That's why we get to know the Lord. So I encourage you to do that. After the... This last bit about the unclean spirit and, you know, what moves into your life, accepting Jesus. Then the, the chapter ends with Jesus, it, it sounds in English a little rude. Toward the end, his mother and his brothers show up. And uh, someone comes in and says, hey, your, your, your family's outside. They want to they speak to you. And It might seem kind of rude at first that Jesus says, well, who are my mother and my brothers? And he's looking around the room saying, anybody who does the will of my father That's my mother and my sister and my brothers. And so it sounds a a little rude at first, but I think what Jesus is doing here, and I'm I'm, I'm guessing he talked to his family after this. That's what I would fill that in. But he's expanding the idea of what it means to be family. That family goes beyond just bloodlines. Family is people who accept the will of God and are putting that to practice. They become brothers and sisters. And some of you have been following Jesus for a while, and that may have happened in your life. There may be people in your life that you're not related to, but you have almost a family-like connection to because you and them have said yes to Jesus and you've been, you've been accepting his will in your life and being walking in the kingdom. And they can feel like brothers and sisters and family. So Jesus expands what it means to be family. Well, what do we do with, with all of this? What do we do with all of this? Matthew is presenting us a picture That Jesus is the ultimate authority over all these realms. Over the special Saturdays, over the temple. He's greater than Solomon. He's greater than all of that. He's got got rule over even the spiritual realm. The physical and spiritual realm. He's truly God, but he's not always going to be what you expect. But He's calling us to open our eyes and see. To open our ears and hear. To soften our hearts to be moved toward him. He's not going to always meet our expectations. But he is a sovereign Lord. What is your resistance? What is my resistance to letting him be Lord and Savior of every area of our lives? Every spot is worthy of his lordship. So I just want to to, to encourage you with this. And maybe you've already said yes to Jesus. But whenever we get an opportunity, every morning, I would encourage each of us to accept not reject the lordship of Jesus. Accept, not reject the lordship. When we see his work and his word right in front of us, to accept it, not walk away. To accept what he's asked us to do. See, followers don't determine the path. Followers determine the one we're following. And we're saying, Jesus is Lord. Let's make him the one calling the shots. It's his kingdom, we get to be part of it. And he's asking us, don't reject me. Accept me. And it, it, your life is going to go a different direction. You're going to go the kingdom way. As Jesus had said already, take my yoke upon you. Take my will. It's going to be a better way to be human. Jesus provides us that rest that is, that is present even in our work. And a peace that's present even when things seem chaotic. Accept Don't reject the lordship of Jesus. Imagine us fully immersed in that kingdom way. What could happen in our families? What could happen in the community? When when we let Jesus call the shots as lord of it all, even when he doesn't always meet our expectations, that we accept, not reject his lordship in every area. If you've already said yes to Jesus, then make every area fully accessible to, to Jesus. Make him lord over every area. What you're thinking, what happens when nobody's watching, what happens when you're at work, and what happens when you're in the community. Let every area be open to Jesus' Lordship. And if you've never said yes to Jesus, you could do that today too. Come see one of us. We'd love to pray with you, take a next step. Let's accept, not reject the Lordship of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your word. Lord, empower us to not just hear, but to put into practice these kingdom ways you're showing to us. Lord, we're thankful for your love your mercy, that we can trust you in every area of our life as, as King and Lord. So we submit humbly every area to you and we, we accept the great work you're doing with eyes open that we can see and ears open that we can hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.